here at McKinsey, I've totally reversed the order and I've started with emerging markets here. And the right. answer is rather simple as to why. It's all about alpha. I believe there's a lot more excess return you can generate in emerging markets than you can elsewhere. And that has been the case for me as I've done emerging markets for more than a decade now. You're about to hear my conversation with Rube Data. We spoke about why quant investing works in emerging markets, how he thinks about quality of management, growth, and value within his quantitative process. And finally, we get his recommendations on where to travel. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Kenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here today with Arup Data. Arup is the lead portfolio manager of the McKenzie Emerging Markets Fund. Uh, he is also leads the team uh, that is a quantitative team based out of our Boston office. Arup, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's very nice to be part of this podcast, and I look forward to the next uh, many minutes answering your questions. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to the wide-ranging conversation as well. Uh, let's get started with how you became interested in investment management. So, Matt, uh, I, grew, uh, I grew up in India. I went to the top engineering school in India and then decided that engineering was not for me. So then I decided to go and, you know, for people after a strong undergrad degree, if you want to change where you want to go, you go back for a master's degree. So I came to the US, that was my first time in the Western world to get my MBA at Cornell University, which is in upstate New York, not too far from Toronto. Um, so those were two great years. And I went in thinking that I want to run as far away from engineering as I want to, even though I knew those were my core skill set, you know, math, sure. statistics, programming. But I quickly realized that getting my MBA that you can't run away from your strengths. You need to stick to your strengths. So as I was figuring out things to do, I realized that finance is a lot of number crunching, a lot of numbers, which comes naturally to me. So I was very early on realized that finance is the way to go. It won't be engineering, but I'll be able to use my skill sets, which is, you know, number crunching, all the rest, programming. Uh, and then while doing finance, uh, there are two kinds of jobs I was looking for, which was in quantitative finance, one would be in the derivatives area in Wall Street in New York. The other one would be buy side. And I ended up in the buy side. Um, I was lucky that a new firm, which is now a large firm here called Man Numeric, uh, when there were just five employees, reached out to me and said, would I like to be their sixth in Boston 28 years back? And then the rest is history. Excellent. So uh, maybe walk us through your early career. You got the call from Man Numeric uh, 28 years ago. Um, I guess I'm interested in two things. One, uh, the general progression as you held uh, more senior roles. And two, what quantitative investing was like 26 years ago and what it sort of compares to uh, now? Absolutely. Let me start with your second question. Uh, so I would sure. say... Early on in 92, and as I was getting my feet wet in the industry, we were one of the few quants out there. Most of the job in trying to get new assets in the door would be to tell people what quantitative investment is. You know, that was a lot of the time spent on, you know, how we use a lot more computing power, et cetera. 
It's the right. same basic ideas. So that was a lot of what we did then. Of course, today, as I try to, you know, talk to clients or prospects, I'm really asked that question, what is exactly quant investing? It's today sure. more about how are we different maybe from other quantitative investors and so on. So, so that's how the world has changed. Uh, one more anecdote, I would say uh, today with the, all the data you have there, you know, we have databases which upload, you know, all the sell side analysts changes in their forecasts. It's happening every minute, every second. We can get it down anytime we want. But in 92, when I joined the industry, we would get it through a big, thick book. Of book. We had to go through that. So I would say those are the early days of quant investing. Of course, a lot right. has happened since then. So as for my progression, um, as you know, if you're the sixth employee of an employee-owned firm you join, you will become a jack of all trade or a master of all trade. You know, you learn, sure. learn to do A to Z. And that's something I've kept true to myself even now, even though I work for a larger firm today, McKinsey, that's how I run my investment team in Boston. You know, we have a very, I would say, close-knit uh, 10 people, uh, nine people team, which, you know, we uh, work very closely together. So going back to my man numeric days, early on when you joined the business, you are usually a quantitative analyst or researcher. You are the one who is being told by your boss to build a model. You know, my first job was to build a new value model, a new way to value stocks. You know, okay. we were uh, something more comprehensive than what we had. You know, simpler, simple value models are look at the you know dividend yield of a stock versus its peers. But the value model we use there is actually a well-known model. It's called the PBROE model, which means the price to book of a stock is a function of its return on equity. So if you have high ROE or high return to equity, high return on equity, so if you're more efficient, then you should have a high price to book. So that's my early days in the industry where uh, that is a model which we were developing at Numeric and I was heavily involved in coding it, building it. As luck would have it, when you join a new firm and the firm is growing very fast, you become a portfolio manager in year two because <laughs> assets are coming in, new strategies are coming in the door, and you are really trying to you know, put people and make them in charge of things. So I would say that's hard to do if you join a large firm, become a PM in year two, but sure. I managed to do that because I was at a small firm. So I would say that was very important to me that I was doing research at the same time being given portfolio management responsibilities. So those were the beginnings for me. I went on then to head up all of US equities at Numeric from 1999 onwards. And then from six years later, 2005 onwards, I became the director of all portfolio management. That is all the portfolios uh, man Numeric managed, all the portfolio managers reported into me. So I was the lead of that. And that's the role I had when I left man Numeric, you know, 20 years after I had joined it. Excellent. That's uh, that's quite an early start, um, and uh, and sounds quite fortunate to join a small firm growing, giving you lots of opportunities. Um, you did reference that your conversations now with prospects are far less about what is quantitative investing and more what do you do differently or how do you approach uh, quantitative investing. I'd love to dig a little bit more into that um, and ask. You know, maybe you can. Uh, give us a high overview of how you approach uh, emerging market equity particularly uh, and what uh, inputs go into your quantitative uh, methodology. 
Emerging markets to me is really the sweet spot for quantitative equity investing, at least the way I have done it in my 28-year career. I would say at Man Numeric, uh, we launched, as I said, when I launched, when I joined there, we had U.S. equities and then we morphed into international and then finally into emerging markets. But here at McKinsey, I've totally reversed the order and I've realized uh, and I've started with emerging markets here. And the right. answer is rather simple as to why. It's all about alpha. I believe there's a lot more excess return you can generate in emerging markets than you can elsewhere. And that has been the case for me as I've done emerging markets for more than a decade now. If you compare my emerging market strategies to my other strategies, other regions, the emerging market strategies have generally delivered better alpha. What's the reason for that? Emerging markets are less efficient, sure. first and foremost. You know, it's less efficient than developed markets. So it's easier to garner alpha there. The second thing I would say is being a quantitative investor Emerging markets actually plays into our strengths. And let me try to explain that. Quantitative investors allow or use computer models to do most of our work. Obviously, we build the models, but the model do the heavy lifting for us. What that means is we can cover a wide variety of stocks. For sure. example, a current emerging market investable universe is 6,000 stocks wide. More okay. than double the size of even the broad emerging market benchmark called MSCI EM IMI. So we like to cover a lot of stocks and we can cover it on a daily basis using computer models. That's a key quant strength. And in emerging markets, it comes much more handy than say compared to a Canadian large cap portfolio or a US large cap portfolio where the names are a lot fewer. And right. I would say the benefits of a quant may not be as apparent there as it is in emerging markets where you have 6,000 plus stocks in your universe. You have China on one end, on the other hand, you have places like Peru, you have places like Indonesia, you know, you have all kinds of stocks, all kinds of variety, but using computer models, we can harness it. So I would say that's why in emerging markets, besides the alpha opportunity to have an inefficiency, the quant strength of harnessing computing skills to cover a wide variety of stock on a daily basis really plays into our strength, in my view. So what that allows me to do is what I've always done in my career, which is, I like to look at my portfolio every day. We rank the port stocks every day and trade based on that every day. Most institutional or retail managers do not do that. So to me, one of the key things what I bring to the table is we actually are in the market every day buying the freshest ideas. And this is a very important topic to me, especially in inefficient markets like emerging markets, the stocks tend to run away from you. You know, sure. either upward or downward. Let's say a company reports, a small Taiwanese semiconductor company reports a good number. It jumps up at the open and then keeps running for many days. So if you are looking at your rankings every day, you will capture that idea the next day and latch onto the name and ride the wave. Whereas if you are a typical manager who trades once a week, once a month, you are late to the game. Right. So I would say that's why the quant daily trading and also the last thing I would say is I always focus on limited capacity. Mm. You know, uh, asset managers by nature like to run up the capacity of strategies they manage because the more money they manage, the higher the fees are. You know, the fees sure. are paid as a fraction of AUM. But I would say all managers would agree that it's easier to deliver alpha and lesser assets than more assets. 
I mean, and that's why for me, all through my career, I've been very big on maintaining capacity limits for every strategy. And once we reach those targets, we close it to new investors. Uh, so that's the reason I've been effective or successful in the past. And we intend to do the same here at McKinsey. So I know it's a long answer to you, Matt, but hopefully I covered yeah. a few things why quants work and on top of that, how we differentiate ourselves versus other quants. That's that's great. Uh, thanks for that. I, I want to circle back and um, talk a little bit more about uh, the general inputs that go into the, the way that you view uh, emerging markets. Um, what I find interesting, and, and maybe we can start there, is you reference the inefficiency of emerging markets historically. I think um, that there's a perception that fundamental managers who are able to do the deep dive on research on the individual companies uh, can really exploit inefficiencies in, in a uh, direct way. Um, sounds like what you have is, is a lot of breadth, uh, but what do you use as inputs to analyze the stocks? How, do you, how does the model know which stocks to buy effectively? Absolutely. And again, yeah, I'm married to a woman who is a fundamental analyst, so I'm very aware of you know, the benefits of a fundamental manager versus a quant manager, and I agree that a good fundamental analyst or portfolio manager will have more in-depth knowledge of one individual stock compared to a quant. I mean, there's sure. no question about that. You know, they do the deep dive. So our strengths are more. We don't do as much of a deep dive. We do less of a deep dive. Still look at 20, 25 different ways to look at a stock, a few value metrics, a few, you know, growth metrics. Our analysts raising their forecast for the company. Is the company likely to have outstanding growth in the next few years? So those are the growth metrics. On valuation, we look at things like, you know, how's the price to cash flow of a company compared to its peers? What's okay. the EV to EBITDA of a company compared to your peers? So a few different value metrics, a few different growth metrics, and then finally a few different quality metrics. Is management good? We try to figure out in our own way and quantitatively, are they efficient? Are they having things like higher return on equity compared to their peers? Do they have higher return on invested capital compared to their peers? Are they buying back shares? You know, those kinds of ideas all in total comprise how we pick stocks. Now, everything I'm telling you here, I don't think makes us any different in terms of how we pick stocks compared to a fundamental manager. They also look at similar metrics. We just sure. allow computers to do it for us in an efficient manner and in a very disciplined manner. So that's how we, you know, try to pick stocks in emerging markets. So yes, we don't know in depth a stock as well as a good fundamental manager does, but we have a pretty good idea on average of most stocks in the market. As I said, 6,000 stocks, which is really hard for fundamental managers to cover 6,000 stocks. I'll just sure. do the math, you know, for 6,000 stocks to be covered by a fundamental team, you'll need about a lot of analysts because I would say any good analyst cannot cover more than 50 or 60 stocks. That's sure. a lot of stocks to cover. So if you do the math, you need hundred analysts and then you need to pay them. So that's right. why I would say in emerging market, even though we don't have the depth, the breadth comes through for us. And hopefully I've given you a little bit of idea on some of the more traditional ideas we look at. And one of the key things for us is a very core approach have sort of, Equal emphasis on our value ideas, whether a stock is cheap, 
on our growth ideas, whether the stock is likely to have a catalyst in place to grow. And then on our quality ideas, that is, is the company well run? Is the quality of management good? Have they shown that through in the financial statements? So that core approach is what drives our process. So that, that's that's excellent color. Um, and I think that uh, understanding how you look at stocks for value purposes makes a lot of sense. Uh, even growth, you can look at uh, earnings per share growth or, or other growth metrics. Um, I wanted to circle back though on how you quantitatively value management. Um, that seems like something that uh, doesn't easily bend itself to numbers. Um, so, so what what is the inputs uh, on the on the quality side? So the ones that are more easily explainable are the ones where we look at financial statements. You know, we are obviously using computer models. We are looking at year-over-year changes in financial statements, you know, the trends in financial statements. So as I said, some of those are things like change in return on invested capital. Are they getting more out of their invested capital in the last one year compared to the prior year, which is what we do is looking at financial statements, which obviously companies throughout the world have to provide. So that's one more standard ways trying to figure out in terms of the, so those are more, I would say numerically easy way to figure out management. The less way is since we do not meet management one-on-one, -on -one, you know, which we believe is not part of how we pick stocks. So we look at management a few different ways. I'll say, and so a few things, one is, you know, all, I'll give you three ideas. One is we look for all else being the same compared to its peers, is the stock less volatile? So in okay. the history, historically, if a stock is less volatile compared to its peers, it usually speaks to a more stable management, a more stable company. It doesn't go right. up as much. It doesn't go down as much. So that's one idea. Another idea which we have found, and this is an idea we came up with a few years back, is what we find here is that analyst coverage is a good proxy for quality of management. What we find here is you have to take market cap out because all else being the same, if a company has bigger cap, they'll have more right. analysts. So let's sure. say you have three companies with the same market cap. Let's say they're all $1 billion in market cap. But one has 15 analysts, the other one has five, and the other one has zero. What we find is the one with 15 sell-side analysts covering them is usually does better, is usually higher quality. And I have a very simple reason as to why that is the case. The reason is sell-side analysts can cover any stock they want. So usually, and most sell-side analysts even today have more a buy signal than a sell signal. So sure. therefore, if you have more sell-side analysts willing to cover a company, which this means then that the sell-side as a whole believes in the company more, you know, because they are covering it more and generally they have a buy signal. So this right. is a couple of the ways where traditionally I've figured out whether the quality of management is good. Let me add a third one, which is more what's the latest and greatest in terms of quant, which is looking at what we call using text parsing or natural language processing. Okay. So idea here is that this was a domain which was not really open to quants till five or 10 years back. The idea here is that, you know, can you parse through all the text that a company reports in its financial statements, in its, you know, uh, MDNA section and so on, and figure out what the company is doing through a computer program, not through a human being reading it. Right. So that's one idea where we, there are various ideas there. Some ideas are 
you can look at the financial statement today versus the last five years. And some ideas here are like if the number of words being used in the financial statements have ballooned compared to the history, it's usually a negative sign. Because what does that mean? The lawyers have put in more legal language because the company is not doing as well. So you have to always qualify your language many ways in your financial statement. Whereas maybe five years back when the company was doing well, the lawyers did not feel the need to put in the extra legal language. So this is where something which I did not do till five years back is where you can use today's great techniques of natural language processing to figure out is this company's financial statement compared to its past? What does it tell you about that company? So this is how quants get it. You know, in summary, less volatile stock, more followed by analysts, sell-side analysts. And then how are the financial statements looking now in terms of words usage compared to the past? Those are the many ways we try to figure out quality of management. Excellent examples. I uh, very impressive and uh, and thoughtful. Um, maybe to latch on to the last um, piece, the natural language processing sounds like that's a relatively new addition uh, to. Uh, I, I think it's fairly new in the marketplace and to your uh, process. Um, I'm curious about research and how you approach research. Uh, within uh, to improve your quantitative process, uh, what is it that you look for in general? And then maybe if you wanted to elaborate on some specifics on things that you've done in the past or that you're currently looking into. So, firstly, I'll start by saying I'm fortunate that most of my team members have followed me from my previous firm. You know, mm. as I said, I have a team of nine, and of that, six of us have worked together before. You know, either okay. whether it was at Man Numeric or my just my prior firm. So that's what I mean by that is we have worked together. So we are hopefully a well-oiled machine, you know. So in terms of research, what do we look for? You know, we are obviously always looking for, there's always this new alpha focus. That is, you know, the new areas quants are getting into, you know, NLP or natural language processing 10 years back was definitely not a big topic or any topic in quant research. But lately, the better quant firms are doing some work in that area. So we continue right. to look at that area, you know, we will be continuing to use a different, the whole world is open out. You can look at all kinds of texts, you know, and sure. see what your computer program can make out the text. It doesn't have to be limited to English either. You can go to other languages too. So, you know, it can be all over. So that's one area. Uh, so the other area, which obviously is a big focus for us is, and a big topic these days is the value versus growth debate. You know, mm. as you may know, uh, that growth has been all powerful in all markets of the world the last few years and sure. value has been forgotten or left behind. So we are continue to do and have done a lot of work on whether we should stick to our uh, steady mix between value, quality and growth in our process or is the time ripe? to tilt a bit more towards value or a bit more towards growth. So that's where, you know, being a quant, we have a lot of charts and data we have walked through. For example, one of the things we're looking at is what is the valuation disparity now within the peer group? Is there more valuation okay. spread out there? The idea is when valuation disparity becomes very extreme, and I would make the case that that is the case today, especially in the U.S., 
and in emerging markets and somewhat in Canada or in international markets. I would say when the value spreads are very wide, it usually at some point makes a lot of sense to bet more on value because, you know, otherwise the spreads can't keep getting wider because the spreads keep getting wider at the, at the end, you'd all work for one company because that's sure. the one keeps getting higher in price and everything keeps going down. So therefore, at some point, the stretch gets pulled back. And I would suggest we may be near or close to that point today in, you know, in many parts of the world. So that's a big focus for us. You know, what are our data telling us? Is the valuation spread very wide? Is there a reason for it? Is there more growth today amongst the expensive names sure. compared to the cheap names? Is there, do they have more of a growth dominance than in the past? And actually today, there is some case to be made that there is some growth dominance there from the larger players in all the markets around the world. So there's a big battle going on between growth and value, largely with growth winning, but at some point in my view, that will snap back. And value will have a few great years, just like it did following the internet bubble and the global financial crisis. So should we position the portfolio a little bit towards that? Because I don't think we are far from that situation today. So that's one research we do, which in quant terms, we call it regime timing. Do you want to stick to your core blend of factors or do you want to time a bit based on sure. uh, significant opportunity you see in the marketplace? I'd love to stay on that theme then and this idea and tension of value versus growth. Um, and the research that you're doing on the regime uh, timing. Um, how does that actually uh, take effect in your portfolio? We talked earlier about three buckets, which is value, quality, and growth. Um, you know, how do you, how do you think about adjusting them uh, in light of this type of research or, or how do you implement that? So usually let's say we have an equal emphasis on the, on the three, let's say it's a third, a third, a third for the whole portfolio. Every stock has its own unique emphasis. For example, for a name like Alibaba or Tencent, we'll use more of a growth factor because of the growth stocks. Right. And in contrast for PetroChina or China Construction Bank, we'll use more value. But at the portfolio level, we are generally equally weighted between the three major, what I call super factors. So when an opportunity like this arises, as I think we are sitting on today in terms of maybe uh, value being very extreme here in terms of the valuation opportunity, what we can do is maybe make, instead of making it 33, 33, 33, in terms of my weighting, the 100% weight I give to my three basic ideas, I may move a little bit more than 33 on value at the expense of the others. So we make a decision as a team, and then we just from that day onwards, the blend we are using in a process, we move slightly more towards whichever factor we want to emphasize and at the expense of the rest. And then the portfolio by its trading on a daily basis over a two or three months gets tuned into this slight tilt in the process compared to your norm. And that's how we try to do this. And usually when we do this, we also have an exit strategy. Let's say we decided to put it on on valuation spreads where, you know, 5x of normal. Right. So my thoughts usually, since I've done it twice before very successfully at the end of the internet bubble, at the end of the global financial crisis, when I was at Man Numeric, what I did was, okay, we can put in the bet when it's 5x a normal bet, but we should be off that bet when it's 2 or 3x. We don't wait for it to be 1x. 
I see. Because then you are too greedy. So we therefore we have all these set stones in place that this is when we put in a tilt, and when these numbers come back to this degree, that is valuation spreads have collapsed a bit, we are back then to our normal blend. That's how we do it in a quantitative process map. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, and we are recording this early September, September 9th. Um, your position of your portfolio now, do you have any of the tilts in place? We have seen growth uh, absolutely dominate um, stock market performance over the past several years. Uh, are we at a point in your view where you are tilting towards value? Yes, we have put on a nuanced value tilt, I call it. It's not a full-fledged value tilt, but we have put on a nuanced tilt here uh, because we believe the valuation spread opportunity is too huge. But it's not a full-fledged tilt as I had put on in my past. And the main reason is there's a case for growth today too. We do find that some of the mega, mega growth stocks, the FANG stocks in the US, or their equivalent in China, Korea, Taiwan, and sure. there seems to be a reason why they are, you know, they, a lot of them are quote unquote monopoly businesses today, but they are talking of Alibaba, where they're talking of, you know, on the other hand, you know, uh, Amazon, or where they're talking of uh, Netflix, you know, so therefore there's a tug of war going on. So we have put on a more slight value tilt compared to our normal blend of things. Yes, we do have that in place and you put it in place more very recently. Okay, great. Um, you've referenced daily trading several times uh, throughout this conversation as a really important part of your process. Um, to me, daily trading means there's a lot of cost associated uh, with trading. In fact, if you look at some of the research on active management, uh, a lot of the uh, difficulty of active management being able to outperform has to do with these trading costs. How closely do you monitor those trading costs and, and how do you ensure that you're getting appropriate return for those costs you know as they say alpha is doesn't happen every day but costs happen every day so you have to be very right. careful when you are trading names you know the trade costs are pretty sticky whereas alpha hopefully was sticky every day and hopefully positive every day but <laughs> that does that doesn't happen that way so to me uh this has been part of my investment life ever since i joined man numeric in 92 so for every strategy we launch, we try to optimize the daily turnover based on what's the most effective thing, because we can see what the pure alpha is. If you turn over the portfolio more, you should get more and more alpha in the process. But if you turn over the portfolio more, you also get more cost. So what you or I as a PM or you as an investor really cares about is the net effect. Right. Alpha less transaction costs. What's the sweet spot? And what we find here is in the less efficient markets of the world, even the costs are higher, like emerging markets or small caps throughout the world, usually the alpha more than easily makes up for it. So for mm -hmm. us, even within our portfolios, we usually have higher turnover in emerging markets than we have in, say, U.S. large cap. Because the alpha is so much stronger. As I said, the stocks tend to run away. If you can get into those early, they run away much more in emerging markets or small cap than they do in US large cap. So we very much closely monitor and decide what the turnover and the daily trading of a strategy should be. And then as we go live and on a daily basis, I have a trader embedded within my team in the Boston office for McKinsey. 
uh, we work very closely together where on a daily basis, we know exactly, we know what our model predicted our cost to be to get into a name or get out of a name. And then we know what we actually cost us because compared to yesterday's close, how much did we have to pay up today to buy the name? How much right. did we have to pay down today to sell a name? So we monitor that closely. And I can say just like in throughout my career, even here at McKinsey, including in the this year with a huge pandemic that our actual transaction costs always run slightly below what our predicted costs are. And okay. that's the way to answer your question, Matt. That is, we know what the costs are. Based on that, we build the process. And mm -hmm. actually, in reality, with the help of our trader in the Boston office and my entire team, we have always seen that our actual execution costs, which is market impact costs, how much you're moving the cost shares, stamp duties, bid as spread, all of that embedded in it, included, we find our actual costs are usually lower than what we thought it will be. In other words, we are pretty uh, very efficient in how we execute. And you have to be, because if you believe you can deliver alpha from daily rebalancing, daily trading, you better be good at execution. Sure. And I would say this is a key quant strength. You know, we can quantify what transaction costs will be for every name. And we take that into account before we decide which names to buy today. Because we take that round trip transaction cost into account before we decide to buy any. Makes sense. Um, thanks for that. That was that was uh, very thorough and and uh, and really clarified. Um, one thing that I've seen with uh, quantitative managers uh, in the past is uh, the phenomenon of alpha decay. Uh, and I, I'd suggest that in the quantitative field, it's a little bit more pronounced than uh, other areas of finance. Um, looking over your career, you've had a very successful career uh, at three different shops, being able to provide alpha along the way uh, at all three of those different shops. How do you avoid alpha decay, which is, you know, having a good idea and then too many quantitative managers chasing that idea and of course arbitrate arbitraging away any alpha so how do you avoid that and, and how do you uh, how do you think about that i think uh, the thing that keeps me awake at night is always how can i deliver alpha for my clients you know if you deliver alpha for your clients then everyone's happy so to me an alpha decay is always a worry you know was a worry is a worry and will be a worry you know and it's easier to define alpha decay for quants than it is yes. for fundamental managers. So, it's, sure. so the way you deal with alpha decay, for example, you know, when we launched our US strategies recently compared to our emerging market a couple of years back, I think the way to put on quote unquote new factors uh, or factors we did, not, we did not or could not use in emerging markets was almost about half the weight of the US strategies. You know, so that speaks to again. Uh, so those are that's a, another way to think of it is old versus new or traditional versus new factors. So you have to constantly look at new factors, and at the same time, you cannot give up on old factors. I mean, value for I don't sure. care, care how others define it. Value is traditionally always an old factor. Things like price to cash flow, EV to EBITDA, price to earnings, all of those have been known for decades. But value still works in general, not always. It hasn't worked that well recently, but it generally still. So I'll always blend ideas like that with the newer ideas, like I said, in terms of NLP. Or right. there are other things, you know, there are other ideas we have brought in since we have joined McKinsey. You know, we are always trying to improve our growth metrics. 
Are we looking at short-term growth? Are we looking at long-term growth? Are we balancing it out? So I would say that's the way you fight decay. You know, uh, you, you always try to, you know, stay ahead of others. Another way you can do it is, uh, and I haven't done it recently, is you can also look at from 13F filings in the U.S., which is U.S. managers are forced to file that. You can see what other managers or other quants exposure to certain ideas are compared to your own. You know, so if you think an idea is being very hotly used by quants, you right. may try to not use it. You right. know, for example, I talked a lot about quality ideas and all, and one of that idea was accrual. You know, that is, does cash flow and net income of a company match up, or there's wide disparity between the two? That right. was a great alpha idea when that idea came around two decades back, but today it's hard to make money of that alpha. So you have to find sister ideas or other ideas to make up for that. So I would say that's what we do for a living. You know, for us, research is about finding these new alpha ideas. And that's what, and then once you put it into a model, that's the model decides what stocks to buy. So sure. our research is not which stock to buy, but what are the new ideas we can incorporate in our process. That's how we try to stay ahead of this uh, decay issue. I'd like to turn the conversation a little bit to the the emerging market landscape. Uh, I know that you're not uh, specifically a macro top-down person. We've gone through your process and, and how you approach markets, but I'd be still interested in your view on emerging markets. You, you've mentioned at the top that they're inefficient. Um, would you expect that they would, number one, become more efficient over time? And then number two, um, just... What were your overall um, expectations for uh, diversity or return or, or whatever you'd like to comment on? So I would say every market becomes a bit more efficient over time. I would say U.S. markets today are way more efficient than when I joined the industry in 1992. But I'd at the same time say that the relative less efficiency of emerging markets compared to the rest of the world will always remain because right. by definition, they're emerging markets. So I would say... So by definition, uh, if there is a good spot for active management, they should always be one in emerging markets. So I would say, uh, you know, so efficiency, uh, you know, to me will be more, but I don't worry much about it. You know, okay. I'll give you this idea. I mean, when we started looking at, for example, China A shares, you know, the mainland China shares, as you may know, Chinese stocks are traded in three different exchanges. Shanghai Shenzhen, which is China A, China A trades in Hong Kong, and then right. largely U.S. listed Chinese stocks. Now, the mainland China shares were off limit for most managers unless they had a Q fee in China. Now that mm -hmm. all changed in 2014 through the Hong Kong connectivity. Why am I saying all this? I would say sometimes you need some efficiency or some institutional management for alpha to be better than what I call the wild, wild west world, you know, uh, the Western <laughs> sure. world or, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, so I would say, for example, when we first did our research on China A shares and compared it to our alpha on China H shares, the only difference is some are, they're listed in Shanghai, Shenzhen in China, mainland China compared to Hong Kong. What right. we found was our alpha there was less on paper. And I think that was mainly because there's a lot more retail players in China, mainland China, than 
and a lot less institutional players. But I had right. the foresight then to say that this will change with the connectivity the institutional players are getting in and a lot of the metrics I have discussed today will start working there very well. And that's what we have found. If you look at the last five years, since we have been running money in mainland China through the connectivity, the alpha has been rather strong. So again, so sometimes it's not all about being more efficient is bad. Too little efficiency is also bad. Hmm. Too much okay. efficiency is bad. Too little efficiency is also bad. You need some sweet spots in between. Okay. So since uh, one more comment on, uh, since you're on this emerging market, I would say people sometimes also mistake emerging markets to be one all the same. And just right. let's just look at COVID, you know, for example, COVID right now, which, you know, we are all dealing with uh, mostly working from home. Uh, if you're fortunate to be able to do that, I would right. say uh, China, Korea, Taiwan, the three largest market cap uh, driven countries in the MSCI EM benchmark largely have COVID under check. You know, they have most people will agree that largely they have done a pretty decent job today compared to where they were in the past. Sure. So I would say that's a very different story in, in emerging markets compared to my own home country, India, from the past, or Brazil or South Africa, where sure. COVID is still pretty rampant. So sometimes you put EM into the same bucket, but they may not all belong to the same bucket, and they may be in different levels of things like COVID, which affects your portfolio and how the portfolio is doing and so on. Makes sense. Um, so when you're looking at emerging markets as a whole, there's a lot of diversity within emerging markets. Um, how concerned are you on things like the trade war escalating tensions between China uh, and the U.S.? Um, while there's diversity in emerging markets, China is clearly the, the dominant country uh, within the indice. Um, so, you know, I, and again, I know that you're not macro, so it might not be fair to ask, but, but what are your thoughts uh, surrounding that? You know, I'm a globalist by background, so I believe in more globalization and all. And obviously, uh, the world politics almost across the whole world has gone more towards nationalistic versus globalistic. You right. know, I mean, that's generally, I mean, I'm not saying all countries, but many countries, including the U.S., Sure. Uh, definitely uh, China, et cetera, have gone more inwards. So I would say, so perhaps we are in a world where there'll be more and more things like the trade war. Obviously, the trade war has been a shock to the system and it affects your portfolio picks because no one can predict where the next tariff will be, who it will be against, right. and how about the counter. I would say whether your fundamental quant, macro, micro, it's a very hard one to call because that's just the nature of it. So I would say it just creates more risk to the overall process. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Obviously, as things look today, uh, obviously I have to try to uh, disaggregate politics with the November elections in the US from you know uh, the reality. So I would say there's, there'll be a lot of noise in my view in the next two months about the trade war and all that, but it'll be interesting to see after November, how it plays out. Uh, so obviously trade or, uh, or something like this, where it creates uncertainty is not usually good for active management. However, at the same time, I would say that historically from what I've read others write about that even let's say the trade wars continue and we get into a two tier system where China has its own tech infrastructure and US and the Western world has its own. 
It's sure. not always bad from what I've read. I believe even times like that sometimes creates at least a lot of creativity because each one is trying to one-up the other one. Sure. It's not always bad. But again, you know, this is the world we live in. Obviously, uh, the pandemic, COVID, tops the list of something I don't think anyone predicted really, or at least positioned the portfolio for. So it's something you have to live with. And therefore, that's why, even though I'm a quant, I have to be very aware of how all this is playing out. And is there any biases my portfolio has to any of these effects? You know, obviously at the end, I always like to say we're on a diversified portfolio. So hopefully the effect of a trade war on any one particular stock should not affect us as much because our portfolio is usually 150, 200, 250 names. So it's not as concentrated as many fundamental managers may be. So we are less likely to be hit on this point. Thanks so much for those insights, Arup. Um, we always conclude these conversations by getting some recommendations for our guests. Um, I know that uh, at least pre-COVID, you were quite an avid traveler. Uh, give me some of your favorite locations and destinations that you've been to. Yeah, as I like to say, travel is my passion. And uh, I've been fortunate to travel throughout the world to most continents and the two that come to mind are uh, uh, one is Peru and the other one would be China, actually. You know, I've been to both these countries in the last few years. And um, I'm a, 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 I love to experience different cultures. So I would say both were very stunning experiences. Um, I know, Matt, I believe you've been to at least Peru from what I know. But I would yes. say to me, just like the vision of Machu Picchu in Peru mesmerizes me even now in my memory, the vision of a great wall or, you know, the uh, the terracotta warriors in Xi'an in China sure. are also mesmerizing. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so to me, uh, these are all uh, things that I love to do. Obviously, I haven't been able to do that. Uh, the one rule I have when I like to travel is whenever I'm in any country, I just stick to that cuisine for the entire time I'm there. So when I'm in China, let's say for a week, I just eat Chinese cuisine and the same in Peru. Uh, it happens to be that I love different cuisines. So to me, it works out very well. Could you pick a favorite cuisine? Maybe that's another recommendation we can get from you. I think it all depends on your palate. You know, I, I love all cuisine, but you have to remember that I grew up in India. And so I like some spiciness to my food, which will make me lean a bit more towards some of the Asian cuisines because they tend to be a bit more spicy than otherwise. But I love all cuisine. Thanks so much for spending some time with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Matt, for having me. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and perspectives before investing. 
the indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.